Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by Joe. Hello, good to be here. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? I started pretty late. Uh, like a few other people that I know, well, I started off with the uh, Acquisitions Incorporated uh, D&D sessions with Penny Arcade. Uh, once I listened to those and I understood what Dungeons & Dragons actually was, because uh, it wasn't really a thing where I was growing up, it was something that I'd heard made fun of or I'd seen you know, parodied or portrayed uh, inaccurately uh, in the media. I wanted to start playing myself because it actually looked like it was really fun. Uh, I was in, you know, drama and other things, so I liked the the improv aspect of it. And then when I came to, I moved to Atlanta, and at the end of 2010, uh, early 2011, right around New Year's, and I just started playing there. I found a found a game group, and uh, we started playing D and D Fourth Edition to begin with, and that was the gateway drug, so to speak. Uh, so I started pretty late in life. I was already already out of college uh, for a few years and everything. Do you remember your first character? I remember the uh, the broad strokes. I think it was Enzo to something or other de Frenzy, and he was a uh, he was a dual wielding rogue or not rogue, uh, dual wielding a uh, ranger who was in this particular campaign was was meant to be on a historical uh, with a his- historical background. Uh, and so the DM had us all uh, do it. We were supposed to be soldiers during the Crusades who got transported to a, a strange realm, like a fantasy realm. Uh, so we all had to have human characters with um, somewhat you know, mundane backgrounds. Like there weren't any magic users, though you could uh, be a, like a religious magic user. Uh, and that was, his, that was his starting point. That didn't last very long. What caused that to come to an end? Uh, well, the players just flat out didn't want to play historical characters. We wanted to play fantastical characters, having more fun and freewheeling adventures. Uh, so the and then once those char- those first characters died in uh in like a a somewhat like a the first real boss monster encounter, uh, our next set of characters were not the the vanilla humans from Earth. They were uh cre- you know, they were characters from around the fantasy world that we had traveled to so i had an uh an elf sword mage and uh I'm trying to remember the other characters that we had there but yeah it was you know it was more or less straight up fantasy at that uh and it was just uh like a fantasy version of of stargate traveling from world to world and each world had a uh ba- historical background like the one we were in was i guess uh supposed to be celtic and then there was another one we went to that was ancient Greece, and then we got to ancient Egypt, and uh, then that sort of fizzled out just because people had time time constrictions and all that, so we couldn't uh, couldn't meet regularly anymore. And then uh, that's that just phased out on its own. We had we got almost to the end of it. Uh, we just never finished off the last couple of sessions. Was that your longest running campaign that you played in? It might be. Um, I tend to prefer shorter sessions because of experiences like that. I wanna, I wanna have a you know a short season that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, rather than trying to keep that same character going for a long time. Are you still playing with the same group now? 
some of the, or at least one of the people that I met then, uh, we do still play, or we go to the game gaming groups together. We don't always play on the same game. Um, so that was, uh, that was a good entryway. And then I met people through them, met people through them. So it was, uh, it was a, it was a good entry point to getting into tabletop gaming in general. And Atlanta had an interesting scene. Uh, a lot of, a lot of older players, a lot of people that had been around, uh, from a lot of the old systems. And then slowly I started meeting more people my age. When did you first start GMing? I got, got it into my head really early. Um, I'm a massive Ghostbusters fanatic, as anybody who knows me in real life or online will know. I've sort of crafted uh, my entire, you know, persona around that. And there was a Ghostbusters game that came out in 1986, and then a sequel to it in 1989, which is more of a revision uh, from West End Games. And it was the first use of the of the D, what would become the D6 system. And then they, they later built uh, Star Wars, the Star Wars role-playing game off of that, and then they made the D6 system uh, off of that. And uh, I kind of wanted to role-play that game. At first, I was thinking about doing a Ghostbusters-themed game in Call of Cthulhu, because that lends itself fairly well. You're investigators, uh, and it's a supernatural setting, uh, and it takes place in the real world. Though I'm not always a fan of that. I do like world-building. But if there's significant stuff, like with Cthulhu, there's all the mythos stuff that does, uh, that does mean you can still world-build on top of the existing world. I was going to do that at first, and then uh, when I, I had that, my first DM, I guess, uh, who DM'd that first Dungeons & Dragons game, was the one that said he was really big on old systems. And he said, you should really look up the old Ghostbusters game. I think you'd like it. It's simple, it's easy to get into, and you know everything about the universe, so you'd be able to uh, sort of uh, go off the cuff with it. And, uh, and I took up his advice and, and um, tracked down the PDFs of the game because uh, it is no longer in production and the company's no longer around and, and they more or less are, you know, no one are involved with the original game minds that people are out there uh, downloading it. Sony doesn't even seem to really mind. <laughs> and I read through the books and I kind of sat on it for a few years and then I listened to a podcast called Ghostbusters Resurrection that's done by the Central Florida Ghostbusters, uh, who I've since met and they're really fun. And they did theirs like a radio play, and they're on the Nerdy Show Network, which is, I guess, that's a that's definitely a style that their that their games have is that they will add in all this um, uh, all this music and sound effects and things, so that when you're listening to it on the back end, it does sound like it's a well produced radio play. And that got me super deep into it, and then I I knew I had to I had to DM that game. So have you actually run it yet? Yeah, I've done a couple of sessions. Um, I think of them as episodes. The The game itself is, is set up so you can get a larger scale with it. Like you can do, if you think about it like a, like a TV show versus a movie, like they give you all the materials to make a movie out of your little campaign. But I definitely play it more like it's a 20, you know, 20 minute or maybe, you know, 40, 45 minute uh, episode of a, of a television show. Uh, so I cut out a lot of stuff, like a lot of the NPC interactions and you know, the side scenes and stuff that they write into it and uh, maybe some of the minor encounters and I, and I just distill it down. So I've done the intro campaign, which is with a couple of different groups, which is uh, you have to stop a, a haunted uh, taxi cab. And so the original one has you stopping it in New York City. And so because I wanted to have mine be the Atlanta Ghostbusters, it's a bunch of recruits stopping a... And also I wanted it to take place in modern day instead of the 80s. 
uh, which is something I go back and forth on. The 80s are fun, but juxtaposing this against the modern day was a lot. It was also a lot of fun. So I had a an Uber that had went, gone crazy in a in an intersection in downtown Atlanta that they had to try and exercise and uh, get under control without causing too much property damage, because um, you know the city is is going to make them pay for it if they cause any damage. And uh, that went a couple of different ways. And then there's an, uh, another one. Most mostly these are just out of the book. Um, there's another one that I followed and I just tweaked it heavily, uh, where you're investigating an apartment complex. And then a third one I, I wrote myself and it was, a basically a Freddy Krueger situation. There was a, a dream eater that was going after people and they had to go into the, into uh, child's dreams and, and try to flush it out. And, uh, that was, that one I came up with on my own. It got a little rocky, but I, we pulled through it to the end and the players really liked it. So I'd still, still chalk it up as a success. It was a learning experience. Did you want to start the team as not yet founded or already in the middle of their Ghostbuster career? Uh, I had them as new hires uh, into an existing franchise that was uh, expanding into the city. So they were the they were the first people in their new firehouse. And as I had more people playing the campaigns, uh, I kind of pitted them against each other. As you know, you guys are the morning shift. You guys are the evening shift. You guys are the uh, are are the graveyard shift, and because uh, it's a twenty four hour business. And so I would tell them the stories of what the other you know what the other characters were doing as they were as they were coming in and, and they were going out and that kind of stuff. And that was a fun that was that was an accidental world building moment that my players kind of helped me create. And I do want to stick with it. That's that's been a good time. Do they have a competition board where you? keep track of the number of ghosts that each shift is busted that would definitely be something i'd include we just haven't played too many um it's been it's mostly been me trying to test out my my gming uh that where i played again played with the other groups so i haven't made any regular meetings or anything like that for the insiders unfamiliar with how the d6 system works what kind of planning do you have to put into a storyline before you run it. Um, it's more old school, so you it's not uh, it's not as improv as some of like the mo- the more modern like powered by the apocalypse world and stuff can be. There's there's more you have to think about ahead of time. Um, you can get it as deep into it or as shallow into it as you want to. Other than that, you you do have to have uh, you know your whole encounter what the what the they have to do to win the session. Um, you, you know, it helps to create NPCs and things like that. I don't do as well off the top of my head, so I do have to at least plan an outline out ahead of time. And uh, the players, uh, they roll against the uh, the GM. That's called a they call it a Ghostmaster, and it's just a handful of D6s, depending on how many skill points you have in a certain stat. So you start with each player starts off with 12 points that they can divide up amongst four different um, attributes. You have brains, you have moves, you have cool, and you have muscle. And um, moves is used to, to uh, fire the proton uh, beam, for example. You know, strength is, is pretty self-explanatory. Brains is... I use it as a uh, for some, some perception checks as well as research checks. Uh, and then cool is mostly a uh, for character interaction. Or if uh, if a player has taken a significant enough amount of damage, or is going up against something that they've established as a phobia or a fear of theirs, or something they have any kind of history with, 
Um, I'll have them roll a cool check to see if they lose their cool at all. And I could have them miss a turn, or I'll just sort of make something up that they have to deal with. And my players have been pretty good about role-playing whatever I've thrown at them for that. Do you have an overarching story in mind leading up to the season villain? Yes, yeah, I have uh, I have a uh, pretty good end game that I wanted to work towards uh, involving you know cult activity and some uh, local history and uh, you know incorporating some comedy into it for anyone that's that lives around here um, with the, uh, the you know the local traffic and and how they're like every other street is called Peachtree. There's you know Peachtree Street, West Peachtree Street, and Peachtree Drive, and Peachtree Industrial Parkway, and uh, Peachtree Road. It's it's absurd, and I have no idea how they got away with it. But it is. Uh, but I started very subtly having all of the events happening either on a, one of the peach trees or not too far from one of the peach trees. And as we were as we got further and further in, the the players could uh, figure out. The, the secret, which is that, you know, all the Peachtree streets are creating this big mandala, uh, across the city, you know, within the perimeter to, uh, you know, as, as some sort of nefarious plot. And then that was going to summon a giant monster because you cannot have a, uh, Ghostbusters storyline without a, you know, hundred story tall creature, uh, walking through a metropolitan area. And, uh, I was going to have a final showdown on top, on top of a building and, and, you know, go through that whole thing, those familiar notes, but, but in a different, you know, more local style. What kind of variety do you have in terms of player characters that you have to play around? Now, I had fun creating a bunch of pregens for my characters. If somebody wanted to make up their own character, that was fine too. But I made uh, basically every, every stat combination you can, because, you know, there's only... Uh, there's only four, um, you know, four attributes that you select, and then you have a specialty in each one that further uh, just makes each, each character distinct. Like your your move specialty might be that you're a really good climber, or you know, or that you're an acrobat, or that you know, whatever. Um, I had I'm trying to think of some any that were particularly good. I had a a character that was supposed to be a uh, sort of Cajun uh, uh, folklore expert from Louisiana, and his his muscles uh, at stat was that he could wrestle alligators. So if anyone if he was going to get into any kind of wrestling match, especially with a a non human entity, he was going to have an advantage, and he get to th- he'd get to roll three more dice whenever he did that. So you know it's the number of attributes you have in in a certain stat that would give you the number of dice that you had to roll. So if you had a three in strength, for example, which is uh, which is average. Then you roll three dice against whatever the challenge was, and uh, I'd set the challenges based on if they were supposed to be easy or, uh, or you know, average or, or difficult or near impossible. Um, and then there's also a randomizing effect called a ghost die, that is a, a single die that you have to roll it in in your hand. So if you only have one stat, you have to roll the ghost die as your as that stat. Uh, if you have more than one, you just add whatever number you need to to the ghost die, like however many dice you need to roll in addition to it. But it's on the six space. So if you roll, and if you roll, say, a, a three, a three, and a ghost die, then you you get six for your score, which is not so good. Uh, and then the ghost die would let me introduce a random element, like something really bad happens, or you know, it gives an edge to whatever's working against the Ghostbusters, or or just random bad luck. But it's 
something somewhat unnatural is supposed to happen, or, or particularly bad luck is supposed to happen. Um, anyway, uh, I got off topic there a bit, but that's uh, I wanted to explain that because I didn't explain that before. However, so they all have these individual stats, and then I'll make um, backgrounds for each one. Like I had the the Gator wrestler, um, I had a a science expert that was uh, from India, and and she was a uh, uh, like a particle physicist, and like I try to create like cultural backgrounds, which the players are free to ignore. But it was my uh, it was my effort to try and make it not just uh, four white guys playing. Uh, as the Ghostbusters, you know, trying to give them a character to play that maybe was a little different from their own. Are all your players also fellow Ghostbusters? So I run a uh, costume group, uh, which I didn't mention before, but we do charity work and stuff and events and conventions and all that stuff. Uh, so one of him, one of them has been really excited about me running the games, and he's played in my games before. Uh, he played the aforementioned uh, uh, Indian tech expert and he played her like a uh, like a technical support, so you know he was just very much like, "Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again?" Like that kind of you know very dry, very deadpan humor. But he he played with us, and then the rest of it have just been people in our game group, some of which know what I do, and some of which were very surprised uh, when I pulled out the uh, I, have a, I had a bag of props that I wouldn't reveal until it was time to use them. And uh, so if I was handing out all the equipment, I had the equipment cards on the table. Someone says, okay, I take the paragoggles. I would pull the goggles out of my out of my bag and say, all right, here you go. You have the paragoggles. And they'd be like, wait, where did you get these? <laughs> and uh, I had to explain that, yeah, this is a hobby of mine. Would you say it's easier, harder, or makes no difference how much the player likes the Ghostbuster franchise? Um, it definitely helps if they, uh, if they're familiar with it, but it's good to have a blend. If you have too many people that are super fans, it's just going to be a quote session. Um, if you, but if you have a few people that, you know, only have a passing familiarity with the, with the brand, then they'll, uh, they'll get more creative with what they want to try to do instead of trying to reenact stuff that they've seen in the movies or in the, or in the video game or in the comics or whatever, or the cartoon. Are there rules in that system for the creation of the company vehicle? Uh, nope. The rules for the company vehicle are basically that you get a kit and uh, that you know lets you create a replica of the Ecto One. And if you, if the players wanted to, I could just say, you know, yeah, you get a fifty-nine Miller Meteor Cadillac ambulance. Uh, what I've really enjoyed is asking the characters. Okay, so what vehicle is your Ecto One? Um, you know, it's going to have the paint job. But and it's going to have the lights, and we're going to bolt the equipment onto it. But what do you want? And one of my characters who was playing a tough, uh, I think six foot tall, buff uh, ex marine uh, lady uh, with an afro, uh, she had a, an astro van because she was kind of like a roller derby, rock and roller type girl. And sh- and they painted the astro van up as the S- Ecto One, and I fell in love with that to the point where I'm actually looking at looking at every time I see like a a, a, a white van that has all the you know the windows either a, a Chevy like AWD or something like that. I'm looking at that and thinking about the modifications I described that were on it and being like, I wonder if I could build that. So the combination of Ghostbusters and the A Team. Yeah, that that was definitely uh, pointed out once or twice. I still I still really like the idea though. Um, and then we had a. Uh, I've listened to other let's or actual play podcasts, and one of them was 
I think it was in northern Ontario, Ghostbusters or something like that, where their idea was they had the Ecto, the Ecto four, the Ecto six, and their story was they kept on wrecking the vehicles, and then this one was a haunted ice cream truck that they had converted, and that and that kind of had a mind of its own. It was sort of a combination of the Ecto one and Slimer, and I thought that worked really well. It was familiar, but it was uh, a little bit of a twist. Considering that you are running a 31-year-old system, is there any part of it that you find hasn't aged well? Yeah, um, some of the writing in the supplements uh, leaves little to be desired. The So I was looking through for uh, various uh, scenarios to run my characters through, and, and, it, and I always find it helpful to run the default ones, like even if I'm going to be homebrewing a little bit out of them, to so that I'll understand what the designer's intent was. That way I can decide how much I want to bend or break the rules, but we'll know that it's still working uh, or how far it is, or how close it is to working as intended. Um, but there is a couple in there that it was you know made by a bunch of by a bunch of dudes, probably a bunch of white dudes back in the late 80s, and uh, one of their, they have, it's not Cleopatra, but it's a um it's a uh, female pharaoh and uh, or female Egyptian priestess insp- uh, inspired uh, character that takes over um, either a museum or a, or or a concert hall or something, and they describe her as the original feminist, and it's all like inferior man creature this and that, and I know that they meant it as a joke, but that stuff uh, doesn't land as funny uh, these days with with the with the rampant uh, and and very serious misogyny that you see. Uh, from people that can hide behind a keyboard. So uh, I I will not be using that one as written. That's for damn sure. What's your favorite aspect of the system? Uh, it's extremely newbie-friendly, which is good for me because I'm a newbie uh, GM, and so my players might be a little bit more forgiving uh, if I'm get, roping them into it. Just really easy to understand how the, how to play. You can go off track with it pretty easily, uh, and it doesn't break the game at all. I don't like long setups or anything like that. I find that I tend to fall asleep towards the end of a uh, of a character creation session, and I'm definitely not ready to play if we've gone on for like an hour or more creating the characters in the world. About how long are the sessions? Um, I think about two and a half hours uh, is about average for what I've run. Is that a length you prefer? Yeah, that works all right. Um, I do. Wa- I don't want any of my players to want to feel like they want to get out of there or wrap something up. I want them to always be moving forward. Though I do, I wouldn't mind running it a little longer for the episodes, just because we haven't gotten into any deep investigation stuff before. I've kind of let them blast their way through because uh, I have a hard time introducing clues without being super obvious. So I'm still working on that. Has there been any point where you were a little too subtle? Um, I mean, I think I like I my characters knew what they were supposed to do during the t- the taxi cab bust. Like I flat out, I, I was getting more and more overt or, or more and more uh, direct with telling them like like you can't just blow up the cab. Like then you're on the hook to buy the whole like to buy the car and. Uh, uh, they had to get an artifact out of the back seat, but the cab would attack them every time they got near, um, and they just could not figure out how to disarm this damn thing. 
I ran it with multiple teams, and one of the one of the teams was smart enough. Uh, it was I had a bunch of uh, set pieces set up, and the thing was the cab was was uh, possessed by a dog demon, and so it was acting like a dog. And the so the players that that got it, um, like there was like a hot dog cart and some other things that were around. They could have used any of this stuff, or or they could have you know they could have gotten creative with it. Like there was a bunch of different ways to handle it, but they, uh, I had a babysitter character who was their driver. Um, cause they were on, you know, they were on their probationary bust and he was, you know, a big jolly guy. He was based on a friend of mine. His nickname is Jersey. And he was, you know, eating a, eating a ham sandwich in the, in the car when all of a sudden shit went down. And so he, you know, he just stomped on the gas and threw the sandwich on the dashboard and they grabbed the sandwich off the dashboard and they used it to distract the dog. Like got it to, you know, basically sit on its shocks because it is, you know, it is, a, it is still in a, it was in a, a Toyota Prius. It was possessing. And, uh, so it like hunkered down and was like, you know, begging for the sandwich. And, uh, while they were doing that, someone slipped into the back seat and grabbed the totem. And as soon as they, the totem was no longer in contact with the vehicle, the possession released and they, they were able to do it with no damage to the car. The other team that, understood that they needed to get the totem but like their only attempt of getting it out of there was to just rush the car so they got really hurt uh i gave them a lot of damage because a car hit them and uh they weren't able to get to it and then they were really low on health and they didn't want to try anything else um you know one of the players just repeatedly kept on trying to just blast the damn thing and uh finally i let her do it and she lets loose and she totally botches her her um her fire roll uh, with a with a ghost eye, and I think she only got like four four points on uh, out of like the the three or four die that she rolled. Like it was really pathetic and really unfortunate for her. Uh, and and uh, so I'm like, okay, well, because you only got a you know a four, you missed the car because it's juking around. Also, because you got a ghost eye, you hit another car. And so uh, she, it, she blows up a, a car that was like stuck in the traffic jam. Luckily, it was one of the first line of cars. There was nobody in it. But then it starts off a chain reaction of you know fire and debris, and it, everyone starts screaming and running away. And uh, and I had that team got fired at the end. There was like one person that tried to do the right thing. I'm like, you're on probation. The rest of you are fired. And the players didn't mind. They thought it was really funny because uh, it it played out you know like a. It seemed like a realistic scene. Um, you know, storyline, everything was consistent. It was just, it didn't go well for their characters, but their characters were also acting like assholes, and they knew it. Am I sensing an evil team come back for revenge later? Yeah, I, I would not mind doing a, uh, a Ghost Smashers plotline with them if they wanted. I think mostly, though, it was just because of um, one of the characters just wasn't or one of the players just wasn't feeling it, uh, like wasn't feeling great that night and just kind of wanted to wrap it up and go home. <laughs> so she was the one that wasn't entertaining any other options. She just wanted to fire. So I was like, okay, you can't, I can't say no to my players on what they want to do. I can give them alternatives, but when they are clearly, they know the alternatives, they don't want to take it. Then I'll let them, I'll let them do what they want to do, you know, but they, they were aware of the consequences. In retrospect, do you wish you would have handled it differently or do you think it turned out to the best? Well, it made a pretty funny story, so it ended up working out for the best. In the moment, though, I was very worried that I was running a game that people weren't having fun with, so I was uh, kind of upset. But you know, once the dust had settled, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, everyone was like, that was very funny, that was a good way of handling it, and the 
um, you know, they did. They ended up trapping the ghost. They 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 eventually you know blew up the uh, the Prius and and uh, the ghost manifested as like a big uh, like a, one of those guardian food dog statues from that you might see in like Chinatown or whatever. There was a big it was a big spectral version of that that came out and they they managed to trap it with a bunch of a uh, bunch of proton beams and wrangle it into a trap. So they they did save the day while also kind of ruining the day. Um, and uh, the other, like I said, that was where I got the idea for telling the other crews that were playing, you know, what happened to the other team. And I'm just like, okay, so the, you know, the day shift got a really cushy uh, assignment and they totally messed it up. So you guys, you know, you guys are going to have to step up. And that's where we came up with like this sort of rivalry between the different shifts. Do you always run the different shifts through the same encounter or do you mix it up sometimes? Well, once I had established the idea of there being different shifts, I would make different encounters, um, or I'd at least play the same encounter, but with a, uh, but you know, during the daytime, or, or you know, have it have things be fairly different. Um, it wasn't like they were comparing notes with the other teams. Uh, I think they knew that I was. I only had a limited number of things I had planned out. Uh, it made it feel like it was customized to them, at least. If you could run a game of this in any location, where would that be? You mean setting wise, or or if I could I could run it someplace in a different setting in real life. In real life, uh, I am getting ready to try to run uh, at a at a convention at, at DragonCon here in Atlanta. They have a big gaming section, um, so I am. I'm planning out uh, how to handle multiple different teams, um, all all running in like the same long weekend. It's going to be based around a convention in Atlanta, though I am changing some of the some of the themes to fit the story a little bit better. And um, so I uh, that's a big task. I'm creating a bunch of different uh, busts that can happen all around the city, all around the where where the game uh, or the convention takes place. And it'll it'll be up to the the teams when they play which one you want to handle. It's like we have these calls coming in, uh, which one are you closest to? And then I'll cross that one off. And so the next team I play with, I'll say, okay, there's another team going after this one at this restaurant. Uh, there's the you know, do you want to take this? You know, which ones of the ones that are left do you want to take? Uh, you know, there's one in a subway, and there's one in the convention hall, and there's one in the in the gaming hall, and there's one in the in the seller, seller's floor, stuff like that. So this is your first time running a game at a convention? Uh, yeah, it will be, and I've already shot my mouth off about it, so I know people are going to expect me to be to be there and be running it, and they're excited. So, and, and a lot of Ghostbusters fans are the ones that I sort of let it out to because I was uh, anxious about it. And I, and I was just looking for, to see if there would actually be interest in it. And, you know, I wasn't disappointed. It might be, I might be in a totally different problem now where I'm worried about expectations that have been built up. Are you going to be in full uniform as the guide for new teams? Uh, at least, at least Saturday I will be, I'm not planning on changing out of it. I do tend to wear that at Dragon Con. It gets a lot of good looks. But even when I'm not, I have a jacket that I can throw on. Um, a few of my guys do that where they we have a these khaki jackets that we that we can wear that have the patches on them and they do definitely evoke the uniform without having to uh pull on a uh flight suit because those are a little bit of a pain in the neck to walk around in. 
what have you done to prepare yourself for all the different tangents that the players could come up with during these scenarios? Um, well, I do, I do try to yes and a lot of stuff, uh, and that's appropriately, that's a, I believe that's a second city, uh, method, which is very appropriate to running a Ghostbusters game since, uh, I think Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd and, uh, Rick Moranis and a, a few of the other guys were all second city alumni. So, you know, if someone's, if they're in on, on a tangent in game, uh, then, you know, I will try to roll whatever they, whatever they're saying, whatever they're saying that they're doing or whatever banter they're having and just, and try to use that as forward momentum into the next thing that happens. That's how a lot of our, my world building is, has worked out. But if it's, if people are talking off topic, I'm gonna, I'm, I might have to be like, okay, okay, so this is what happens next. Just sort of wedge in there and, uh, and force it a little bit more, uh, overtly. How do you go about getting a table at Dragon Con to run a game? Well, I'm not planning on reserving any gaming space. There's always extra uh, rooms that are set aside that friends I know uh, are will play in, and I always see extra tables in there, so I'm just going to camp out at one of those. Planning on giving any goodies away at the end of the session to teams that do well? I've discovered from running a Ghostbusters franchise over the last couple of years how to find things like bulk Nestle's Crunch Bars for uh, when somebody does something really good, I can say, you know, I'm going to take back some of the things I said about you. You've earned it. And I hand that over. Of course, uh, I, I've given out Twinkies in the past uh, for anyone that wants to quote off. Like, sometimes I'll hold it up. I'll be like, okay, I want you to explain this in you know the best pseudoscience you can. And, uh, and, and they will try to explain the situation. And, uh, and if they do, you know, regardless of whether they do a good job or not, as long as they try it, they're going to get a Twinkie. And, uh, there's like a couple other goodies that I've, I've found. Um, I'm trying to think of any right now, but I'm coming up empty. But yeah, I like to, I like to have little giveaways. You mentioned a couple of actual play podcasts. Have you considered recording? Yeah, that's that's actually been brought up. Um, I thought about doing a recording with the rest of my my Ghostbusters group uh, if we wanted to make our own podcast similar to how the Central Florida guys have done it. They were just a podcast at first, but um, they got they sort of uh, found their way into the Ghostbusters fandom. And um, and last I saw them, they had their flight suits and everything made, and they were looking at our packs and just asking a lot of questions. Uh, they drove up from from Florida up to Atlanta for a party that we threw. Uh, or that a local, you know, local uh, uh, organizer through, but had us as the headliners uh, back in July, right before the the uh, latest movie came out. Uh, so I was I was thinking about going and following their formula uh, and getting around a table and trying to record. Um, that's kind of difficult with everyone's schedules is what they are, but maybe it'll open up a little bit later during. The Dragon Con session, uh, I talked to some of the podcasters that do some more general Ghostbusters podcast news, things like that, that are big fans of the Central Florida guys' work as well, and they really like the idea of bringing their equipment or getting some equipment together and recording uh, our game sessions, and then they said they could help with things like editing in you know, background music and sound effects and things like that, which I do actually try to carry that into the game. I've, I've really enjoyed how it sets the mood and keeps people on topic, so... I will have uh, interstitial music from the cartoon from the 
uh, from the movies and stuff, just playing on, on loop for whatever the mood and the scene's supposed to be to help keep everybody's heads in the game. And uh, it'll be cool to be able to edit that in. And also, I used uh, I made a soundboard with all the different sound effects. So when someone wants to turn on their Proton Pack, I can play the little boot-up noise, and that's, that's one of my favorite sounds ever. Uh, so... Things like that really help out with uh, players getting into it and, and getting enthusiastic about what they're doing, and it helps them describe things in more minute detail because they want to hear, you know, they they want to hear my take on it or the sound effect that I want to I'm going to use to describe it. Do you try to keep your games universe separate from bumping into characters from the movie and animated series universe? Um, I base my my characters pretty much in the comic book universe, which, for those that don't know, there's a an IDW comic that picks up from sometime after the second movie. Uh, so the first two movies are canon, and then most of the video game is canon, and then they just moved it on from there and just you know added new characters and had new storylines and things like that. So they're somewhere in the mid to late '90s at this point, I have to assume, or at least mid '90s. Um, so I have it in that universe and they did a really cool thing where they involved some of the characters from the cartoon universe, like some of the, one of the extreme Ghostbusters, uh, Kylie Griffin is, joins the team in the comic book. And I really liked that. So that's sort of the mentality that I'm going with. It's, it's that version of that universe. And they just kept on, um, they kept on working as Ghostbusters and they got licensed by the city. And so that's a big thing. I'm not going to have the characters, if I do a campaign, I'm not going to have them start off being licensed and bonded by the city. They're going to have to negotiate for their contracts. Uh, when the if someone wants to hire them, they're going to have to haggle pricing. They're going to have to um, you know get the, make sure they sign the waivers so that they don't have to pay damages, things like that. But if they if they're able to have a few successful missions and they're able to to um, to do really well, they can uh, pitch it to the city. Especially if they say, if they manage to save the city from some big threat then the city can pick up some of their bills. They no longer have to talk with a superintendent about, you know, how many windows they need to replace or, um, or, you know, how many smoke alarms they destroyed, that sort of thing. I do have them running into those characters, but not, not in person yet. I have them since it is in Atlanta. They do. uh, I did have a uh, group that wanted to call up the head office on the phone. So I had Kylie be the one that answered them because she was the research expert. And then she looked something up for them because the, players were on the on the scene and couldn't figure out like a good way to do research unless they were going to google it or something on their smartphones Uh, so i do have them run into the into the universe that way you've mentioned trying to take a yes and approach to gming is there a limit to what you will say yes to well i'm not gonna i'm not going to accept it if someone tries to rewrite the universe or like you know, tries to break something that's already established or understood. But I'll take a yes and to anything that that character wants to do. It just might not work out the way that they wanted to do it. You know, so if someone wants to explain how they're going to handle something and they're just super cocky about it, I'm like, okay, well, I'm taking it as this character is very, very cocky and very confident. But you know, they're going to have to back it up. So I ask them to roll. Is there any concern about a single player? ruining a session for the rest of the group? Not really. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll keep an eye out, but I usually read people pretty well, at least if I'm in the same room with them. So I can, 
I can do a lot to um, to try and I include the other voices that, that uh, might help me steer that one player into a more helpful role if they do did want to try to be uh, discordant but I don't really I don't really worry about that too much it hasn't happened a whole lot from my in my tabletop experience uh, I find if I in at least when I've been a player if there's somebody that's being kind of disruptive and there's another person that's being really quiet uh, even if I'm just another player I will reach out and like make a discuss you know do an in-character discussion with the person that's being quiet for example or I will reach out to the person that's being disruptive and just try to steer them back in and that's worked really well so far uh, and I just think I would probably not choose a player that was too obviously going to be disruptive to uh, and would be too much of a liability regardless of the reality of its existence if there is one thing from your game that you could have what would it be uh, I think it would have to be the car uh, I'm not sure if I'd want to carry around a portable nuclear accelerator. That seems like seems like a, it could end badly in a lot of ways. But even though they're a pain in the ass to keep up, up with, I would probably, uh, in a heartbeat, drive around in, in an ectomobile. We are going to start wrapping up here. But before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. What is your favorite word? Uh, I'll go with psychomagnetheric. I mean, that's a pretty common one. Yeah, just, you know, your standard $10 word. What is your least favorite word? Uh, I've always been disproportionately annoyed when people say mature uh, instead of mature, if that counts. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Creatively, I uh, I really enjoy collaborative efforts when when everyone is getting a chance to turn the wheel a little bit and and contribute into something that w- that's greater than the sum of its parts. I've always th- that's always been something that as a, as an artist and as a gamer and whatnot, I've always I've I've enjoyed. What turns you off? Probably just really, really insistent egos, people that are going to be uh, 100% stubborn, um, that kind of like alpha mentality of if you let up even a little bit or compromise even a little bit, then uh, then you're somehow losing or lesser for it. Uh, I've never jived with that kind of personality, so that would be that would shut me down. I would just find someone else to, to hang around with. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Mother Puss Bucket. Is that a common one? It is when you hang around with Ghostbusters. What sound or noise do you love? Um, let me let me see if I can just play it for you. I was planning on editing it in because I'm pretty sure I already know which noise. All right. In that case, it's the uh, the proton pack boot up noise, specifically the clip when they're in the first movie when they're in the Sedgwick Hotel and they're riding the elevator up, and Egon says, "You know, it just occurred to, or is it? No, it's uh, Ray that says, "You know, it just occurred to me that we've never actually had a successful test of this equipment," 
And then Egon says, yeah, I blame myself. Peter says, yeah, so do I. And then Ray says, well, no sense worrying about it now. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. Yep. Let's get ready. Switch me on. What sound or noise do you hate? I've listened to a couple of episodes of this podcast, so I know I'm not original here, but like, I really cannot stand uh, metal on metal scraping. Like specifically, if like if you're stirring, say like a pot of pasta, and you're using a metal fork and it's just scraping the bottom of it, it makes me want to just compress into a single uh, point of existence, just cringing so hard. What game system would you like to attempt? I still have some interest in Call of Cthulhu. I think there's some good stuff there, and in uh, and in Delta Green, um, you know, they have some similar themes to what I like. Uh, and I've uh, really enjoyed Shadowrun. Like uh, I've only played. I don't know if it's the most recent uh, release or maybe it was the one previous to that, but I really enjoyed it when I played it, and I just liked that cyberpunk aesthetic. What game system would you not? I tried Rifts once, and the problem wasn't so much the base system. The problem was that this particular DM really loved complicated stuff, and he had every source book imaginable for Rifts, and he let us create like a bunch of uh, very different characters, and all with different rules and then mashed up into a world that had all sorts of different rules, and it was like 90% looking stuff up. Uh, so I I would enjoy never having to deal with that again. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. And finally, if you could have any actor or voice actor from the entire Ghostbusters franchise at your gaming table, who would you want? Uh, well, I'd love to have Ernie Hudson, because he does probably have the best voice. Um, I'm not sure how nerdy he could get down uh, on, the, on the game table, so I'm pretty confident that Maurice LaMarche could probably, uh, could probably roll some die pretty well. He looks kind of like Gary Gygax. Uh, he's the guy that did uh, Egon's voice in the real Ghostbusters cartoon, and also um, most—he's <laughs> in almost every animated show of our childhood and the generations after us. With uh, uh, Pinky in the brain, he's the—he's the brain, and does a, you know—he's in—he's in everything. Is there anywhere that the insiders can follow you? Uh, you can follow the Atlanta Ghostbusters uh, on Twitter, Instagram. At, uh, at ATL Ghostbusters or go to AtlantaGhostbusters.com which currently just forwards you to our Facebook page um, and uh, yeah it's we do events just locally so far but we try to uh, work with franchises from other states and have a, have a good time and uh, try to do things that are worthwhile because if you're going to spend this much money and time an effort on something as selfish as trying to create your childhood fantasy in real life, you may as well uh, try to make sure as many people can enjoy it as, you, as, uh, as possible. And anything that you would like to plug? Well, I do want to make sure that I give, give the proper respect to Ghostbusters Resurrection. Uh, you can find them on, on iTunes. 
Um, and you can find all their games, uh, all their supplemental game material at gbrpg.com or yeah, uh, or nerdyshow.com slash gbrpg. I think you can also go to gbrpg.com and it will redirect there. So not only did they make it possible to play the game by making the, the original books available on PDF, I think they're just hosting files that have been around for ages, um, but they, they also created new modern uh, stuff based on the video games and you know, creating new rules for uh, things like you, know, you no longer have to have a telex number if you're playing Ghostbusters, now you can you know, have a cell phone. They also uh, produced a bunch of laser-etched ghost dye, so you can buy that from their store, and it, so that you don't have to have an old, you know, 1980s D6 that has a peeling ghost sticker on it. Now there's an actual laser-etched and painted uh, ghost die that you can roll around, uh, and it comes with a set of these cool slime green dice. And it also comes with cards as well for all the equipment cards. Uh, and I'm hoping for an expansion pack that comes with purple dye, but I've kind of already bought those purple dye that look just like the green ones, but in a different color. I tracked down which version they used. Thank you for joining us today, and good luck at DragonCon. Uh, thanks. I'm going to need it. If you like this podcast, head on over to AudioEntropy.com for many others, like Burgers at Pops, where Ashley and Rose investigate the weird but fascinating world of Riverdale, Teenagers with Attitude, a Power Rangers rewatch, and the Digital Moncast, a Digimon rewatch. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, Gozer knew that the greatest weapon in the GM's arsenal is their player's own imagination. If you're all alone, let me sleep in